0: What protections do survivors of domestic abuse have when they fight back, harm, or sometimes even kill their abusers? It's a question that was on my mind as I read the story of Keisha Golden from Chicago's Austin neighborhood. Golden's now in jail on a $2 million bail bond after killing the father of her unborn child last weekend. Reports show that she called police on him several times this year about domestic violence, and she says she was acting in self-defense when she stabbed him in the leg and that she had no intention of killing the man. Here to talk more about this case and cases like it is Rachel White-Domain. She's an attorney and the director of the Illinois Prison Project's Women and Survivors Project. Welcome to Reset, Rachel. Good morning. Also with us is Alexis Mansfield, Senior Advisor at the Women's Justice Institute and Director of the Incarcerated Survivors Project at Ascend Justice. Hi, Alexis. Good morning. Rachel, let's start with your thoughts on this particular case with Keisha Golden.
1: Absolutely. Well, one of the the questions that you asked me, Sasha, before we got on is about the legality of this of this charging decision. So as you may have seen or as your listeners may have seen in the news, Keisha was charged with first degree murder after killing this person who was who was previously being abusive to her. And I thought that was a really great question because it allows us to examine charging decisions. So the charging decisions that prosecutors make when someone is arrested is sort of a point in our criminal justice system where there's very little, if any, oversight or check. So prosecutors have what's called prosecutorial discretion, meaning that they can charge people who are arrested and survivors of domestic violence are no exception based on their understanding of the facts. So a lot of people think well, if it's a self-defense case, I could never be charged or I could never be convicted. And the fact of the matter is that's not true. And that's because of a combination of this uh, ability of prosecutors to charge uh, really with a, with a wide range of discretion, in addition to the fact that we have these bloated minimum sentences in Illinois and across the country.
0: Yeah. Well, I want to dig into this self-defense piece. Alexis, how does a person's case change if they are allegedly defending themselves against an abuser and they're pregnant? Uh,
2: I think it, it, uh, for women of color in particular, I, I think that uh, the ability to defend defend oneself is frequently uh, called to question in general. Um, historically, even going back to 1855, uh, there have been cases where women uh, have been found to not have a self to defend um again particularly women of color uh and as recently as last month there was a study from the Harvard School of Public Health um that was released in October that found uh that the leading cause of death for people who are pregnant is homicide it's not hypertensive disorders or hemorrhage or sepsis or anything else we might think of as a cause of death during pregnancy it's literally homicide with But 68% of those cases involving gun violence, and again, black women are the most likely to be killed uh, during pregnancy. Um, And in places where there is a lack of access to reproductive health care, including access to abortion, Mm -hmm. there's an increased risk as well to pregnant people. Mm. And so it is a particularly vulnerable time for people who are pregnant. Uh, And yet, often their right to self-defense is not recognized.
0: So so being pregnant doesn't offer any recourse in the court's eyes?
2: Uh, There there is a law in Illinois um, that allows uh, for people who are pregnant that states that they are supposed to be given uh, an extra look when it comes to bond review, Um, that they are not supposed to be held in pretrial detention while pregnant unless it can be shown that they pose a – a particular risk to somebody, a specific risk to somebody in the community. Right. However, that is often not followed by the court system.
0: Right. And and Rachel, it's definitely not been followed here in this particular case. Keisha Golden is eight months pregnant. What happens if she gives birth in jail, which is where she is right now?
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, Alexis, you can address more than I am. My understanding right now is that she's being held in what's called CIRMAC, which is the the hospital that's located within the jail. Uh, Alexis, you work more with, with uh, folks who are pregnant around pregnancy. What would happen?
2: Yes. Uh, for somebody who gives birth in custody, whether it's a county jail or the Illinois Department of Corrections, legally they're supposed to get 72 hours together with their baby. Um that is the end of that protection in terms of the amount of time that they can have together. Uh, Illinois does ban shackling while in labor um, Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and and as well as for people um, who are pregnant in general. Um, However, as you can imagine someone who's just given birth and and for a baby who's just been born 72 hours is an incredibly short amount of time. And that is often not even followed. Uh, And while, Uh, Cook County Jail leads the way in many ways uh, in comparison to other county jails in terms of allowing pumping of milk and visitation. It is so difficult for that to happen. And so we have a lot of moms who've just given birth and babies who are really punished by separation. Mm.
0: 72 hours is not a lot of time,
2: Alexis. It is not. My goodness. It is truly not.
0: Uh, a Naperville woman who said that she'd been a victim of domestic abuse faced first-degree murder charges after fatally shooting her ex two years ago. But those charges were recently dropped. Why was that, Alexis?
2: Um, well, in that situation, uh, State Attorney Berlin in DuPage uh, recognized uh, in a statement that he released uh, last week uh, that they really had to consider the chronic domestic abuse that she had faced. Um, And I I want to applaud applaud them for dropping those charges and recognizing that it is not always what happens in an exact moment for somebody who has experienced abuse, but the chronic domestic abuse they've experienced that leads to that moment Mm -hmm. and leads to how they feel and the need to defend themselves and and their knowledge about what will actually happen to them if they don't defend themselves. Uh Uh, And I think that goes back to what Rachel said uh, at, at the beginning, that Yes, I'm very happy these charges are dropped. But these charges should never be brought. We win people's yeah. lives by bringing these charges.
0: Yeah, Rachel, why don't you pick up on that? Because what I'm thinking is, is the minds, the state of mind that these women are in, right? Do they just feel like they just need to take matters into their own hands? What's, what's going through their heads at that point? Do you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the question that we should be asking is what we're not doing in order to create the safety and the conditions that women need and that survivors of all genders need um, in these situations. Right. So, you know, when we look at, for example, Keisha Golden's case, one of the, the things I noted in the reporting is that she not only previously had called the police and still wound up in a situation where she wasn't safe from this abuse. She specifically reported strangulation. And then together with what Alexis was talking about around pregnancy, we know that someone who's experienced strangulation by their abusive partner is eight times more likely to be the victim of homicide by an abusive partner, eight times more likely. And so when we think about the self-defense, you know, people, again, have this sort of, we have this idea. If we're not exposed to these cases and we don't know what's happening, we don't take a deep look at what's happening within our, criminal system, we think, well, if someone has a self-defense argument, then there's no way they could be charged. There's no way that they can be convicted. But that kind of contextual information that Alexis is talking about, yeah. your risk of being killed by your partner if you're pregnant, your risk particularly heightened around strangulation. There's a number of other factors. I'm just giving that anecdotally. Right. Uh, that is not taken into account when we just look at the narrow letter of the law in terms of the
0: self-defense um, right. uh, uh, instruction. Now, we know both men and women can experience domestic abuse, but the the data show women experience abuse and die from it at significantly higher rates. Is there any Correct. evidence? Is there any evidence, though, that that women defending themselves from a de- domestic abuse situation that they end up with harsher sentences than men who are charged with domestic in abuse? In fact,
1: there are, and in fact there are, and I, I think Alexis might actually have that statistic here uh, in a second. But I want to I want to ex- expand upon your earlier point. It's actually three women a day just in the United States. Who are killed by who are killed by domestic violence, wow. and the and the other thing I want to say, and then I think Alexis may have a statistic for you, but you know I also think it's important, and that, so I appreciate this segment because the way that these stories are reported. So this story was reported as, you know, there's a, the fight over I think it said a microwave, and Alexis and I see that time and time again in the reporting that these these stories of what happened are taken out of context in a way that. It's it's deliberately stripped of any sort of context around domestic violence or the experiences. There's no way that something like this happened because of just a fight over the microwave that any person applying common sense, whether you work in the field of domestic violence or not, shouldn't accept a story that just says, yeah. you know, this fight happened over, over a microwave. There's certainly more to it. So mm-hmm. um that's something I really, I think it's disingenuous of, of prosecutors. Um I know that they use that in their, in their efforts to set a high bond. And I think it's disingenuous in the way that it's reported. Alexis, do you remember that statistic? I think that was do. in the court.
2: Yeah, I do. At uh, the Women's Justice Institute, we released a report uh, in 2021 called Redefining the Narrative and in one of the sections speaking about the need for relationship safety for women. Yeah. We discussed uh, distancing um, and, and what studies have found. And on average, for men who kill a partner, an intimate partner, they are sentenced to two to six years in prison. Wow. Meanwhile, for women who are sentenced to uh, killing a partner or in the death of a partner, their average sentence is 15 years. Yeah, much more. Two times the sentence. And in addition, we know that 93% of women who are convicted in the death of a partner have previously been abused by that partner.
0: Yeah. So we're running out of time here, Alexis, but tell us, how are women supposed to defend themselves in these abusive situations? What, if anything, would courts accept?
2: I think that there are... uh, a few options for for people who are being abused but again they don't guarantee safety we do have orders of protection that is something that someone can seek but uh, truly we need a full system that has financial support for people trying to leave abusive situations that has housing um, as well as we need support for people who've caused harm um, so that we can help people who have caused harm as well and i think we need to support legislation that Will make it so that people's uh, full history of yeah. gender-based violence can be introduced, so that can be considered. Uh, there's legislation pending right now under H. 4847 mm-hmm. that would amend the Illinois Domestic Violence Resentencing Act, which oh, is an act that was passed uh, in 2016, but only five women have been released under it.
0: We'll have to leave it there for now. Good to good to hear that there is some movement uh, towards a more positive future. Alexis Mansfield is senior advisor at the Women's Justice Institute and director of the Incarcerated Survivors Project at Ascend Justice. And Rachel White-Domain is an attorney and the director of the Illinois Prison Project's Women and Survivors Project. Thank you both.